Hello, and welcome to the Community IT Innovators Technology Topics Podcast, where we discuss nonprofit technology, cybersecurity, tech project implementation, strategic planning, and nonprofit IT careers. Find us at communityit.com. Thank you for joining this Community IT Podcast Part 2. You can find Part 1 in your podcast feed if you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Community IT Innovators webinar, Creating Value and Saving Money on Nonprofit Tech. My name is Carolyn Woodard. I'm the Outreach Director for Community IT, and I'll be helping moderate today. My name is Johan Hammerstrom. I'm the CEO at Community IT. So this is a question. When does it make sense to outsource IT? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's very situational. So um, we'll just talk through a couple of illustrations that hopefully will speak to your particular situation. In our experience, organizations that have less than 10 staff, uh, typically they usually don't see enough value from working with a managed services provider um, to make that worthwhile. And we've, we've found that most smaller organizations um, will usually, they, they do have IT needs and they do need someone to help them with those. Um, but they, that can usually be done either through, you know, the accidental techie, um, the person on staff who wasn't hired to do IT but has an aptitude for it um, and an interest in it um, can, can generally do things like setting up the Google domain or setting up the Office 365 tenant. Um, if, you know, the organization decides they want to use Slack for their, you know, communication, they can get that set up and manage it. There's a lot that a, an accidental techie can do. Um, if they're good at what they're doing. Um, also, there are a lot of independent consultants that tend to be very affordable, especially for smaller organizations that will, especially independent consultants, there are quite a few that are just interested in working with nonprofit organizations. And those can be extremely valuable in helping you get set up at that and maintained at, the, at those smaller sizes. Um, occasionally, volunteers can be helpful, but you really have to be um, careful with that because this is a this is a critical and ongoing need. It's a business need that your organization has, and um, typically, you know, nonprofits, you know, use volunteers for a, in a lot of great ways. Um, but this is an area where you know, to, you kind of need someone who's going to. There needs to be continuity of care. You know, sort of over time, someone who knows the systems and is able to maintain them over time. So some organizations have someone like that. They're very fortunate who's willing to provide pro bono IT support and can commit to doing that in both a responsive way and for a long period of time. Um, but I've also seen the flip side where, you know, you get someone like an IT person who wants to kind of moonlight or they want to give back and they end up setting up a really complex system that no one else um, you know, knows how to manage and, and so forth. So once an organization gets past 10, you know, up into the 15 to 20 range, um, they're the, the ongoing sort of requirement to manage it becomes more significant. You just have more staff. They're going to have needs. Um, the chances that you have as a number of staff that you have increase, the likelihood that you have staff who are going to click on a malicious link the likelihood that you have staff who aren't going to know how to use a particular system, 
is going to grow. And so you're just going to find yourself with a need for basic ongoing tech support that you don't have um, at smaller in smaller sized organizations. And you're also going to, the, the complexities of managing 25, you know, managing 25 laptops versus managing 10 isn't two and a half times more difficult. It's like 10 times more difficult. Um, it grows exponentially. And so having a solid system in place to do that is pretty critical. And having um, someone who's providing support in an industry standard way is starts to become more and more important. Um, so that's the point at which we would recommend going with a managed services provider. And that's you know an organization that's basically providing like an outsourced IT department, but in a scalable way. So good managed services providers will have a help desk. They'll have engineers that the help desk can escalate to. They'll have a team that can help with planning and roadmap creation. Um, and they'll have a team that does network operations, as we call it, the pro checking, making sure the antivirus is running on all the machines, making sure the machines are all patched and up to date. A good managed services provider will handle this for you. And they're probably managing hundreds, if not thousands of other um, computers. And so it just, the economies of scale just make a lot more sense to, to outsource that. Um, so that's in the, you know, 10 to, 10 to 100 range, really in that small and medium-sized nonprofit space. And then once you get over 100, um, you now have needs that are becoming even more sophisticated and you can um, afford to start building an in-house IT department um, at, that, at that level. There are some exceptions. And, and we've seen it with some of these disruptor nonprofits, nonprofits that are building their own applications, nonprofits that are doing really extensive um, data management or who are using technology to deliver their services uh, will tend to have in-house IT at much smaller sizes. And they may even, you know, maybe they, they are incubating and they spin out of their um, organ the organization that they're incubating with, um, with 10 or 15 staff. They may have someone in a lead IT role at that small size because it's such a critical part of the work that they're doing. So that's where the, there's kind of, there isn't like sort of a one size fits all um, to how you do IT staffing. Like if you are trying to staff up uh, internally, but you can find job descriptions um, for all kinds of different IT roles on Indeed. Um, they have a lot of different you know, templates and examples. But yeah, I think you, you touched on it a little bit of after you get to a certain size, you're going to look at either needing an IT manager, an IT director, even a CIO, if you're a large enough organization. But I think, you know, at, at these different levels, you know, of size and how important IT, how disruptive it is, how much IT is like part of what your nonprofit does, um, there can still be a role for outsourcing, you know, part of your IT um, needs, um, maybe the help desk, you know, maybe some project work. So I don't know if you want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, sort of a, a, a general principle of outsourcing is, you know, outsource the things that aren't central to your mission or in business terms, like the things that aren't um, unique to your business. And then um, keep in-house anything that is um, central or, or unique to the, to the work that you do. So, for example, making sure that laptops are patched and up-to-date 
and making sure that the antivirus is, is running and has the latest definitions, that is pretty generic. And that is the same for all nonprofits. It's the same for all businesses. So that's something that in general uh, might make sense to outsource from a, from a business standpoint because it's, it's very generic. Whereas if you're, um, if you're delivering you know, educational services, like an, if, you're, if you're running an after-school program and you're, you have specific curriculum that you've developed, um, the, now you might outsource the coding and development of that curriculum, but you might want someone in-house to kind of oversee that program who has an IT background. Um, and that person could also own IT for the whole organization, but then they might just manage a contract with, an, with a provider to manage the infrastructure. So I think one of the one of the challenges or one of the mistakes, if you will, that nonprofits sometimes make when hiring IT people is they want sort of a, a jack or jill of all trades, someone to kind of do everything for them. And it's important to keep in mind that IT work is very wide ranging and specific skill sets don't always translate. So someone who's really good at coding and development typically doesn't have a background in networking or cybersecurity. Now, if they're really talented, they might be able to, you know, do all of these different things. Um, but that's usually the exception. And so it's important to be clear about what you're hiring the person to do and not expecting them to take care of all of your IT problems for you themselves. Now, they could manage contracts uh, to support some of the different areas like website development, for example, um, pretty effectively. But that's for small organizations that might be an IT manager. Um, someone who's kind of a management level, uh, first level of management in the organization on par with other managers in the organization um, that would have a, one specific sort of core expertise that they own. And then the other aspects of IT might get ha handled by other people. For example, like organizations might have a finance manager or an operations manager. They may be really good at um, business process and they're okay at finance, they're, they don't have an accounting background, but they know enough that they can work with the outsourced financial firm to manage the books. And they don't have an HR background, but they know enough that they can work with the PEO or the outsourced HR provider to make sure that HR is getting done. So it's a very similar kind of scenario with, um, with IT. And then as the organization grows and as the needs become more sophisticated, you'd start adding more senior um, layers to your IT function. And so a large organization, be good to have an IT director um, that might have managers reporting to them. So like a hundred person organization, they should definitely have an IT director. They might be outsourcing the help desk, um, but they might have an in-house IT manager or a systems manager who's managing all of the databases and, and reporting services you know for the organization um, and then once you get into the 150 200 300 size organization you'd start looking at adding a, a CIO um, so that IT has a seat at the executive table one of the things that we we saw for a long time not seeing it so much anymore is sort of title promotion which is not uncommon at nonprofits and I understand why it happens and I'm not trying to be critical of it but um, I think the CIO term tends to kind of get used in a, a less than rigorous way. And I've seen cases where 
organizations don't want to lose an IT director, so they just promote them to CIO by giving them the CIO title. And I do think, and, but then that creates problems because they're not actually doing CIO uh, level work. And, um, and it just kind of creates some challenging situations for the organization. So it is important to be careful with the titles that get used when you're creating new positions in the organization and to really understand, is this person um, expected to operate at the senior most executive level of the organization? They're not going to do any hands-on work. They're going to have their own executive assistant. They're going to be involved in fundamental core strategy for the organization. Then they'd be a CIO. But um, if they're expected to do sort of some contract management and um, you know managing managers who are managing people, uh, director level. And again, like the titles vary a little bit um, from organization to organization. So these aren't hard and fast rules. I'm just trying to provide a sense of sort of seniority and strategic engagement that exists in these three different positions. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. And I think um, I'm kind of hearing as you're talking about this too, I think making sure that you have pretty strong communication along all of this um, when you're planning, when you're implementing um, and when you're, you know, kind of maintaining your technology, making sure that the people that need to be informed and be making the decision that there's clear um, lines of communication. Often, I think, like we said previously, often IT would be like the IT person does that. And we're seeing more and more that it's it's becoming known that it's so central to how you make your decisions, but still keeping that communication and and maybe um, you know making sure that that's working for the organization. I want to go over our learning objectives. I think um, did a pretty good job of hitting those. Learning the role IT can play in the success of your nonprofit as you grow. Understand in general when to outsource, when to build talent in house, when to hire. Learn what IT is needed at different sizes and stages of growth, um, and then be familiar with typical IT job descriptions and typical roles. Uh, we have so many free resources on our website. We have videos of our past webinars that we host. We have a podcast you can listen to. Um, we have a lot of free downloads of these different aspects of managing IT at your nonprofit. From Nonprofit Learning Lab, if you have some questions coming in. Yeah, so the first one that we have is, I work for a 10-person nonprofit and we are all working remotely. I'm the only person on staff that has technical skills. I've only been with the organization for almost three months and all systems and processes need to be updated. For example, document storage is the bane of my existence. We are using a faulty server, even though we have access to SharePoint. Some items are saved on both and there is no rhyme or reason for anything. Everyone on staff complains about the server, but doesn't do anything about it. Fortunately, someone in leadership has asked me to evaluate this and make recommendations. If we were to move over to SharePoint, how would you recommend moving over to SharePoint when there are so many documents, some from the 90s on this server? I'll say, first of all, they're very fortunate to have you uh, at their organization. And um, I'm glad you've been able to kind of put up with the frustrations of the situation. And it's great to hear that the leadership recognizes that this is an issue and recognizes that something needs to be done about it. Um, so I, I hope for the best um, in, in kind of resolving this situation. I think the good news is that with 10 staff, even though there's a, a huge number of documents, um, I would, in terms of SharePoint migrations and particularly migrating 
files off of legacy file servers. I've found that it helps to think about it more in terms of the number of staff than the number of files and think about it in terms of um, you know, the staff who are with the organization now and the work that they need to do. How can you design the new system to make it easy for them to do that work as possible? And then you really focus the migration on migrating the active documents that they're using. And then um, you can still create like a, a repository in SharePoint for archived documents. So um, this is something that, this is kind of the most common practice with uh, the organizations that we work with. We do a lot of SharePoint migrations. Um, and, and this is the approach that we took with our own uh, migration when we migrated off of our file server. Um, we, we, we did it on a team by team basis. Um, you might be able to do that with the entire organization if you're only 10 people. And we created new document libraries um, based on how the organization works now. And then we identified like what needs to get moved over now into these new document libraries for people to keep doing the work that they're doing. And then everything else got moved off of the server into a um, sort of a archive library that only a few people had access to. And it was a, and we'd basically say like, if you need something in the archive, you know, let this person know and they, they can give you access to it. And, you know, what you'll find is that probably 80%, 90% of the files in the archive never get accessed. They're there in the exact same like folder structure that they're in on the server right now. Um, so you can get to them if you need them, but people would start, you know, there's a little period of transition, but once people like start using the new system within a couple months, they'll be you know, really adapted to that new system. And if you design it around how people are working now and anticipate working, you know, over the next few years, um, they'll tend to, I, I would hope that there'd be a lot of buy-in for that project because I imagine accessing the files, it sounds like a painful experience from your perspective. And that's probably true for most of the staff. So. And I love, hope. I love doing that, um, taking that approach of making the archive. Cause I think a lot of people have anxiety around, I'm going to need that file even though it's from several years ago. Um, so making sure that people know they will still be able to access older files when they need them. And then yes, you'll find after six months, nine months that pretty much nobody needs them. <laughs> that's right. The last, the, the other thing I'll mention is if you do, that's called a forklift where you like lift up the folder structure as it currently exists on the file server and move it into a cloud solution. Um, you got to, be mindful of size and file limit restrictions and so forth. So there are some technical details to be mindful of. We would strongly recommend using a tool. There are a number of excellent migration tools that you could use that um, are not that expensive. They are more a little more costly than like just doing a manual upload, uh, but they're well worth the investment. So if you do do a forklift to an archive, um, strongly recommend using a migration tool to do that. Do you, I know we're coming up on time. Do we have more questions? Yes, we have another one um, and we should have time for it. Uh, so the next question is, none of our staff are really tech savvy. What advice do you have for non-tech people to start using technology in more innovative ways? Well, we have a download on our website <laughs> <laughs> that's called Building the Foundation for Innovation. Um, and we talk about that exact thing. And we also talk about what we've talked about today with the different kind of 
tiers of if you're young and growing that, you know, the kind of technology that you need or might want to invest in if you're kind of in the middle range or have been operating for a couple of decades, if you're a larger organization, um, what sort of innovations you might look into. Um, so I want to make sure to recommend that. And then Johan, I know you probably have some ideas. Well, I think one of the really interesting things about being in IT in, in 2023 is that almost everybody in the world today uses technology. They have a smartphone, a tablet, the TVs are, you know, everyone's streaming and whatnot. And we were actually talking about this um, as we were preparing for, for this webinar and also for, we did a tech trends webinar um, at Community IT earlier this month. And, you know, we were saying that like, people have sort of figured out how to do things on their personal computing devices um, that can be really innovative in, in some ways, like how people use their iPhone can be really innovative. Um, but oftentimes that doesn't translate into organizational settings. And I think the conclusion we came to is that um, it's easier in some ways to just do stuff for yourself individually. But when you're trying to use computers in an organization, it has to be done in a coordinated way. Like you're not using it for your own purposes necessarily. You're using it in conjunction with other people. So you're chatting with them, you're meeting with them, using a database to enter data has to be done in a consistent way. And what can really help with both consistency as well as innovation is focusing on um, standard operating procedures, which sounds very heavy and not very exciting, um, but putting together a guide, like this is how you should be using this technology, like basically defining for the people in the organization, like this is what it means to use the technology innovatively in an innovative way. And then setting that expectation and then having people take the lead on doing that um, is, is one way of, we found that to be probably the most effective way of getting staff to use technology um, more effectively. Yeah. More I've also heard, Johan, of um, clients that do like a brown bag um, series where someone who is using one of your tools, you know, like and is very comfortable with it could share with other users, like kind of some of the tips and tricks or like different things that they do, kind of how they do it. And it can be an ongoing thing instead of when you get hired and onboarded, there's this huge, big training, but it could be something that's just like 15 minutes once a month, somebody shares, like, this is how I use Slack, or this is how, you know, like I access SharePoint, and this is where I save everything and how easy it is. So you could try that as well. Yeah, it really, that's a great point, because it really depends on the natural sort of learning culture of the organization. Some organizations, the brown bag lunches are super popular. Other organizations are very video driven. They're like, just record it. We'll post it. People will watch it. And that, so it really kind of depends on the, you kind of have to work within sort of the natural culture of the organization as to how people typically, you know, learn and communicate. All right. Um, it looks like that's all of the questions that we have. Thank you, Carolyn and Johan for educating our community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining this Community IT Podcast Part 2. You can find Part 1 in your podcast feed if you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Community IT does these free webinars and podcasts for our community, and we love sharing our knowledge and experience. 
If you have more questions or are having trouble with your IT at your nonprofit, please get in touch with us on our website, www.communityit.com, so we can start a conversation or schedule an assessment. Downloading any of our free resources there will get you signed up for our webinar reminders, and you can attend our next webinar in real time and ask our experts your own questions. If you love podcasts, please subscribe and leave us a rating to help others find this leadership resource for nonprofits.